The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Now I'm going to be reading from Job chapter 40, starting in verse 6 and going through chapter 42, verse 6. Hear what Holy Scripture says. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and... Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. 
When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp pot shards. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You be seated. God, these words are challenging. And I pray that you would take away our simplistic notions of who you are and that you'd put the right categories in our hearts. Lord, we, um, we think of this psalm that says, unless the Lord builds the house, the workmen labor in vain. So we pray, God, that you would build the house this morning, um, that our study of these words would not be in vain, but that you would build something in us, in the church as a whole, that is firm and that will not collapse. So be our true teacher now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Some people think that the book of Job is all about where is God in Job's suffering? But really, it's all about where is Job with his God in the midst of his suffering? Despite all the times in the book in which Job hints about putting God on trial, it's actually Job on trial. Just as in the midst of our suffering, it's our faith that's on trial. Will we hold fast and trust while wrestling with God? Or will we grow cold and shut down or even give up and walk away? I mention that because whenever that we suffer, there's a tendency to act like God is the one who has to prove himself. And precisely because of that dynamic, you might be expecting that, well, finally, this week, this is the time when we'll get the answers, right? What's it all about? What exactly is God doing in my suffering? Well, I'm going to have to disappoint you. But maybe not completely. Uh, even if the end of Job doesn't give us a detailed explanation of what our suffering is about, more importantly, it provides us with a framework, a framework that insists that we can and we must trust God through the pain. And before we get into that, let's just review the theology of the book of Job that we've already covered in past weeks, because today it's all going to kind of get mushed together. So first, we need to remember that Satan is not free to terrorize in whatever way he wants. He's a dragon on a chain, and God ultimately has the last say over anything Satan might do. 
And let's just admit, this is an unpopular truth in a time of school shootings and genocide. It's much easier, at least it seems easier, to somehow believe that God just disavowed himself from, from intervening in human matters, and, or maybe that he chooses not to know that things are going to happen, as if that could somehow be more comforting to us. His sovereignty over suffering is too important of a truth for us to leave behind. And if any of you are having a hard time coming to terms with that and seeing that really all across Scripture, please, let's talk about that. Second, we need to remember that it is foolishness to grow cold and bitter or to reject God when suffering comes into our lives. And for this, we really we looked at the character of Job's wife in the story. Third, Third, when we, we consider God's justice, when we think about, is God fair to us in our suffering? Where is he? What is he doing? Um, we have to be careful not to interpret his words or his actions in a, in a wooden way, in a way that puts God into a box that says, this is the rule. God always has to work this way. Uh, we remember that the three friends of Job did this. They suggested that God was like a justice vending machine. And, and because of that, therefore, Job must be evil. There's no other explanation in their minds. And even Job was putting God in a box in a different way. And that was pointed out by Elihu. Well, fourth, let's remember that God rewards those who devotedly wrestle with him in faith. He rewards those who wrestle with him. Suffering doesn't mean that we have to stay calm, but it does mean that we should run toward God with our tumultuous prayers and never away from him. And Job did this all along throughout the whole book, and he's commended for it as we saw in chapter 42. But all of this still kind of leaves us with a question mark. What is the big picture? What is God up to? And today we're left to consider chapters 38 through 41 to consider that. And if you've heard this section taught before, usually the descriptions of God's acts in nature are really emphasized. And those feats are meant to show us both his power and his wisdom. And uh, so according to this view, God speaks to Job and essentially says, Hey, did you set up the world? Can you control nature? Can you take care of the animals? I didn't think so. Job, you're not God. You can't do the things that God does, so shut up. And if that's the message, well, I'd say you might be forgiven if you find it a little bit unsatisfying. Um, now, certainly the passage doesn't say less than that, but I hope that today we'll find that it says much, much more. I hope that you'll see with me that we can trust God in suffering because he has revealed himself as the conqueror of evil. We can trust God in suffering because he has revealed himself as a conqueror of evil. God answers Job twice, and I want you to think about it this way. The two speeches of God at the end of the book. First, God presents himself as the conqueror of evil and chaos in the natural world. And second, God presents himself as the conqueror of evil and chaos in the supernatural world. And both of these revelations are needed by Job in order to correct him and comfort him and give him assurance. And it's particularly the second one that astounds him in the end, and that's why I read those verses today, and we'll mostly focus on that section. But first, let's start with the first speech of God, starting in chapter 38. So Job needs to understand that God hasn't abandoned the natural world to evil or chaos. When evil men 
steal your, serv- your, steal your animals and they kill your servants. Or when a freak windstorm comes and blows down the house of your oldest son where all your other kids are gathered. Or when a horrid skin disease comes and Job can't even go about life for months and months. Now, how could it not feel that God isn't really taking care of those aspects of creation? That maybe he's actually complicit in these problems. And maybe you've had great losses or suffering yourself that has sparked similar thoughts to that. And you question, like Job, is God willing to promote justice in his realms? Does God even care? And so God graciously reveals himself to Job in the whirlwind as a warrior of heaven stirred up for battle. In chapters 36 to 37, when Elihu was talking, he, you'll notice towards the end, he incorporates some language of the storm. And perhaps we're meant to imagine that there's this massive storm kind of rolling in as Elihu finishes his comments. Now, God hasn't come to war against Job, but Job needs to see that God is by no means apathetic or passive here. God tells Job to brace himself, and then he blasts him with this string of rhetorical questions. First, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when I measured them out like an architect? Obviously, no, you weren't there. But something to note about who was there. Verse 7 says that the morning stars sang together, and the angels shouted for joy. And that's going to be important for us to keep in mind, because God paints a very positive view of his creation throughout these speeches. And then verses 8 through 11 are critical for us. They ask, Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. These verses are very relevant to Job's whole puzzle, and to understand why, we are going to have to talk about ancient Near Eastern culture. Did you know that before we understand what the Bible means for us today, we have to understand what it meant to the original audience? Um, The Bible is a timeless book. It is a supernatural book, but it's also an incarnate book. It, it, It takes on flesh. God didn't just have a guy in a cave have um, this trance and then, and then download the whole book all at once. He also didn't have a prophet dig next to a tree and find golden tablets. No, these writings were given to specific people in specific cultures, specific situations at specific moments in time. And far from that limiting the power of these writings, it actually proves their worth all the more. So, just like it's much easier to, um, to understand a Jane Austen book, uh, if you know something about the social manners and customs of England around 1810, um, and, and as you read a novel or two or, or watch, you know, watch a Jane Austen movie, you, you kind of absorb that. You get a lot of that knowledge along the way, and it helps you the more you understand. Well, similarly... When we read the Bible, we have to open up new categories in our minds. We have to open up these unfamiliar terms and and things from ancient Near Eastern culture, Persian culture, Jewish culture, Greco-Roman culture. So what I want you to see, first of all, is that in ancient Near Eastern culture, the sea represented the realm where chaos and evil dwelled. 
And one of the tasks of uh, whatever pantheon of gods you're talking about, one of their tasks was to keep the sea in check so that the, the chaos would be restrained and order would prevail. Well, in the verses that we just read, God affirms that he has set boundaries for the sea. But far from needing to subdue the proud waves, he was there at its birth, and it has always been under his control. And verses 12 through 15 go on to say that God has put creation together in such a way that evil is resisted and evil is shaken out from the skirts of the earth. And light is withheld from the wicked and their uplifted arm is broken. There's, there's so much more going on in verses 4 through 38, but uh, even just with what we've talked about, you can see that God is claiming control over chaos, over death, over wicked men. And he goes on for the, the rest of that first speech then. He turns a corner and he starts talking about lions and mountain goats and wild donkeys and wild oxen and ostriches and war horses and birds of prey. What's, what's that about? <clears throat> well, these creatures were considered dangerous or unpredictable or sinister or even unnatural in Job's culture. And one would think that the possibility of... Um, encountering these creatures like it, it might raise a question for you what, what is God why does God allow these things to still exist I, I don't know if you've ever watched a, a documentary about elephant seals that's a question I have why what's going on here God these these creatures are brutal they're ugly they like kill themselves within their own population I have no idea why God created elephant seals um, <clears throat> something like that is going on here and for the original culture even the thought of encountering a lion, that would be a lot like the thought of a car accident. Just a terror that is random and is out there and you don't know if you're going to meet it or not. And these verses show that God, paradoxically, he restrains evils like that, but he also protects these animals at the same time and allows them to keep existing. Um, so God is <clears throat> restraining, but he's also maintaining these things that seem nonsensical to our reasoning or hostile to our existence. So we may see that what happens in the world, it, it feels wild and strange and out of control to us. But the point of this first speech is really that our judgment is very limited and we don't know what is good in the big picture. We're, we just don't, we're not adequate to make those judgments about the way God runs the world. Job simply doesn't know enough. He's like a man in a strip of the Pacific Ocean that has just been repeatedly battered by storm after storm. And, and, and so he claims that the whole ocean is always stormy all the time and there's no beauty, there's no peace or Pacific quality to it at all. There's only grotesque violence. That's what Job sees. But God here talks about swaddling the sea and of providing... but also restraining the undesirable animals. And it shows Job that he's had tunnel vision. God does cultivate the good. God has not checked out of that duty, but he also wields the frightening elements for mysterious purposes in that work. God's plan for creation does allow for some chaos and evil within limits. And this isn't a mismanagement of creation, and it's not indifference to justice. So, why is Job so moved by this confrontation? In chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, Job answers the Lord and says, 
<clears throat> Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I, I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I proceed no further. Why did the first speech change Job's tune? Because he's starting to realize that God gives us what we need, not always what we think we need. Job needed to move past, give me the answers I long for, and instead he needed to end up at, God, I can't deny that you're at work throughout creation, keeping evil in check, and I hear you, that I need to trust you even when you do that in ways that I would not have preferred. I want to share a story from a Christian counselor. He writes, A good friend attended one of my sexual abuse seminars. The material provoked a strong reaction in him, and he felt compelled to take a walk around the church parking lot. He decided to sit down on a pylon. He was struggling with the question, Where are you, God? Why don't you seem to do more for those who have been betrayed and violated? He was also battling with loneliness. He wanted to... He wanted God to engage him and to comfort him and to draw him into his love. And as he sat there, he noticed a small bird only a few feet away. He thought to himself with good humor and slight cynicism, I, I wonder, is this bird perhaps an agent of God sent to encourage my heart? He thought about how Elijah had been nourished by the birds and just looked away. A moment later, he noticed that the bird was moving slowly toward him. To his utter astonishment, it, it hopped into his hand. He was stunned. He felt oddly alive as if he were in the presence of an act of God. But in an instant, he blinked and the bird defecated on his hand and flew away. And it left a large splotch of whitish liquid all over his hand. And at that very moment, he recalled it. It felt suddenly as if his other hand caught on fire. He looked at it and saw that it was covered by a mass of red ants. And in pain, he began wiping the ants with his free hand. And after knocking most of the ants off, he noticed that his hand was swollen, his shirt was now covered with bird excrement, and his body was covered with sweat. And he sat there stupefied. He had longed for God's comfort, but what he had just experienced felt like an assault of nature orchestrated by God. He sat there for a time, and then he began to laugh. I laughed less at the event, the man said later, and more at the irony of how God dealt with my demands. I thought I wanted comfort. What I really wanted, however, was not so much his comfort, but his acknowledgement that I'm a little boy who needs to be taken care of, not a man who has the courage to face life. Thankfully, God responded to what I deeply desire, to be respected and honored, rather than to what I thought I wanted. In an odd sense, I felt invigorated to move back into life. And the author finished this story with this conclusion, that part of the mystery of God is his disruptive intrusion to provide us with what we desperately need, not what we think we require. And he does that by the use of paradox. He draws us into the darkness, and in the midst of what appears awful, he fills us with awe at his bright goodness. Well, this is close to what the first speech was meant to communicate. And so Job reverses his criticism of God, and he commits to silence. But it's still not a complete answer, right? Job's children are still dead. More is needed to heal the distance between Job and his God. 
So let's move on to the second speech of God where we transition away from the natural world. Now the supernatural evil that so terribly interrupted Job's life is going to be brought into the foreground. Remember how we talked about that need to understand ancient Near Eastern culture? Well, it's about to get even more real. In every culture, we're surrounded by folklore, right? And just because I incorporate that folklore into my conversation, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that I believe those things, right? I could say, she has a voice like a mermaid, or that guy looks like an ogre. And you don't necessarily think that I believe in mermaids and ogres. Um, or when we think about evil um, and, and terror, we might incorporate stories about werewolves, vampires, zombies, or, or the Grim Reaper. But it doesn't mean that I actually believe in any of those things. That they're, they're devices that we're using to think about certain concepts. <clears throat> we'll keep all this in mind as we talk about mythological creatures in chapters 40 and 41. But first, let's look at verses 9 through 13. He asked Job, Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together, and bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge that you... That, that your own right hand can save you. So those verses will be sort of the theme for this whole second speech of God. He wants Job to know that unlike Job himself, God can arm himself with anything he likes. And God will get glory over the proud and God will bring low the proud and save the oppressed. He can bind the wicked in judgment and Job needs to know these things. But immediately after setting that tone, then God launches into this discussion of behemoth, a Hebrew name which represents no known animal, but perhaps could be translated the beast or super beast. And this, this thing feeds among the grass and dwells among reeds, and it has massive bones like bronze and bars of iron, and we're told that he is the foremost of God's works. Only his maker can draw the sword against him. What is this creature? Well, since about the 17th century, uh, behemoth has been identified by many as simply a, a hippopotamus. But that doesn't totally fit for two reasons. Uh, in verse 17, behemoth has a tail like a cedar, but a hippo's tail is thin and short. But even more importantly, it's, it's insinuated that humans can't successfully hunt this creature. But in Egypt, during Job's time, it was very popular for the pharaohs to go on hippo hunts. Interestingly, though, though, these hunts took on symbolic meaning. They, they showcased the king ridding the realm of harmful forces. So maybe we should say behemoth isn't merely a hippo. It's important to see behemoth's mythical role, lest this be an anti-climax. Because if God is just trying to convince Job of his strength to subdue natural animals... Well, he's preaching to the choir because Job himself has spoken many times of God's power in, in previous chapters. And if all God says here is, hey, you can't make a hippo, you can't fight a crocodile, would that leave Job breathless? As a skeptic and playwright George Bernard Shaw once said, God really has to do better in explaining the problem of evil than to say, you can't make a hippo, can you? And he does do better. 
Just because we don't think this is a hippo, it doesn't mean there aren't similarities in description. We always use the physical description of natural animals to help us describe mythical ones, right? Um, if there was such a thing as a unicorn, we of course know it would share most of its qualities with a horse. It doesn't mean that I'm just describing a horse, though. Interpreters, even before the time of Jesus, saw behemoth as a supernatural creature so that God is using a poetic way to express his very real mastery over evil and chaos. And this fits with the mythology of the surrounding cultures. In the Akkadian Epic of Gilgamesh, the hero fights a supernatural bull. In Egyptian mythology, uh, the, the god Horus struggles against the chaos god Set, who takes on the form of a hippo. Also, the, the Canaanite god Baal defeats Mot, the god of death, who gores people like an ox. So that's what's floating around in the cultural milieu here. Well, in Job 49, God isn't saying that death and harm are embodied in a literal animal-like beast that he will hunt. No, he's just borrowing those simplistic beliefs of the pagan cultures to explain a profound reality. There is a monster who is somehow primary to God's purposes in the world, but who will come under God's sword? What would Job think about that? Well, he wouldn't be as lost as we are um, because already in his own speeches, Job has referenced mythical creatures much in the same way. Uh, back in chapter 9, verse 13, Job said, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. And in 26, 12, he says, by God's power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. What's going on here? Who's Rahab? It's not the woman from Jericho in the book of Joshua, okay? This Rahab taps into both the Babylonian and the Ugaritic creation myths where a sea monster, along with its cohorts, are slain by the champion deity to establish order in the world. Now, we know from Genesis 1 that that is not what happened at creation, right? God spoke, and it was, period. So, in this context, this is just a poetic way of saying, through creation, God showed that he has total control over all. There is no rebellion that won't experience his anger and no chaos that won't be stilled. And Psalm 89 says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. And Isaiah 51, 9 calls on God to bring Israel out of exile by saying, Awake as in days of old, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? So in other words, haven't you always been the God who rescues from destruction and who brings order out of chaos? Another name for a sea monster that embodies evil and anarchy is Leviathan. And Job was already somewhat aware of the supernatural evil represented by Leviathan when he was in the midst of his pain and he was cursing the day of his birth in chapter 3. Do you remember that? And Job wished, he, he vocalized this, he wished for someone to just rouse up Leviathan, sending everything into chaos. It's much like we might thoughtlessly say out of our pain, God damn it all. And then in chapter 7, Job suggests that maybe he's being punished as if he were Leviathan. Asking God, am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? 
So Job is just grasping for concepts from the mythological world to describe his experience. The Mesopotamian god Ninurta de- defeated a seven-headed sea serpent, and, and Baal fought a tyrant with seven heads named Litan, from whom the name Leviathan likely comes. So the, the imagery of Leviathan was in the culture, and it appears elsewhere in the Bible too. Psalm 74, 13 to 14 speaks of God crushing the heads of Leviathan. And then, here in chapter 41, Leviathan is described as armored on its back, having a strong neck with folds of flesh. It dwells in the sea and has fierce teeth. It breathes fire. Its heart is as hard as stone. Terror dances before him. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. Leviathan is a king without equal. And yet, he's a created thing. And he is king over the sons of pride. Leviathan is an animal-fied picture of Satan. He is the grim monarch over the demonic hordes that serve him. He is the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And Job knows that he would be powerless before Leviathan. He has felt all too deeply what that powerlessness before evil feels like. Now, our assumptions about suffering, about how God uses suffering, usually sound something like this. To be fruitful, our suffering should be temporary, and it should be understandable, and it should have readily applicable you know, results for our lives, very practical in its nature. But what about when suffering isn't like that? What about when it's chronic pain that's not going to go away for the rest of our lives? What about when I'm never able to explain it to others? What about when, when I, there's just no tidy way to say, God allowed this to happen in my life so that, whatever. What if it always seems senseless? Does that mean that God isn't at work? Does it mean that he doesn't care about me? These speeches by God to Job, they show that he is neither limited by evil, nor is he evil, but he is sovereign and good in a way that's beyond human understanding. How does he defeat evil, harm, and death, and chaos if he allows them to keep happening? Well, he doesn't give us the formula. He doesn't give us the blueprint for history. We can't be sure, but in Job's case, we get a glimpse that God allows Satan to plunder Job's life in order to prove that the faithful don't serve God out of bribery, but out of their love for him. And that plays a role in the war against Satan. In order to understand the tragedy of chapters 1 to 2, Job has been questioning God's willingness to combat evil. And in response, God offers no explanation to Job. He doesn't seek to justify his decisions. Instead, he just unmasks the enemy and expands Job's vision for God's ultimate purposes. What's then the conclusion of all this? Should we be really afraid of Satan? No. Verses 10 to 11, God says, No one is so fierce that he dares to stir up Leviathan. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God is the only one humanity can look to. He is the only possible champion over evil. We can trust him to defeat evil, and we must trust him. 
and this glimpse of God as warrior, it reconciles Job to God's current administration of the world. Now, you may have noticed that God sounds anything but sad or defensive or worried when he speaks about behemoth or leviathan. He's not ready to shut down the world as a lost cause. He actually sounds happy in this speech, and he seems to find some sort of satisfaction in uniquely defeating this opponent. And as the description of Leviathan goes on, Job would have become increasingly more and more terrified. But what happens at the same time is that God's glory is more and more elevated because he stands perfectly calm in the sight of such horror. And if God, the only one who sees fully all that's wrong with the world, is so certain that this kind of world with Leviathan on the loose should still continue even longer before all is made new, then we who are in the service of this God can also rest in that conclusion. God's plan for his world right now is to allow evil, even evil that exists in massive doses, which humans can only grasp through symbols like mythical creatures. Even as this evil is revealed, though, God assures Job that it's kept within strict boundaries and one day will be eliminated. And the implication, then, is that Job can move forward with hope. One scholar writes, Job saw the world as one vast inner-city ghetto filled with the unanswered screams of the innocent. Eliphaz and his friends saw the world as dirty in God's sight, like an unpleasant boarding school for rebellious teens where even if one might be thankful for the growth that happened there, you're always glad to be done with it. But God's perspective on the world is totally different. No other character in the book is so consistently positive about creation, even while being utterly realistic about the evil he allows, but only for a time. And so also should we receive each sunrise joyfully, even when we sense that Leviathan is lurking nearby. So how do we think about life? How do we think about the world in which we live? Is it just a hardship or a nightmare to survive? Or is it something to be greeted each morning with joy, grounded in the knowledge that God is the transcendent warrior over every evil we will encounter? This unveiling of Leviathan, it clears up any thought that God is letting chaos win or that God is treating Job as the enemy. He, he communicates, Job, you think that I simply attach you for no reason, but look out at the sea with me, and there you'll see the real enemy, mine and yours. And this picture of Satan as a horrific but limited creature, it corrects the theology of the three friends because they said that a person's suffering must be linked to God's anger. It also shows that God understands how much Job has suffered at the hands of this dragon. And knowing that God knows that, well, that could just make us renew our protest. Like, if Leviathan is horrific like this, and if he's just a twisted, created thing, then God, why can't you slay him right now? And how will you defeat him? And when will you defeat him? And why would suffering like Job's ever be necessary? But if we keep going back to that position, then we would be subject again to the challenging questions of chapters 38 and 39. There are no answers provided for us. Not in the book of Job, anyway. It's enough for Job to trust God and to respond accordingly. But the Leviathan theme isn't dropped here. In Isaiah, 
the community is grieving their utter ability to see justice or deliverance accomplished on the earth. And then comes chapter 27, and uh, an expression of comfort comes to them. And it's not depicting something that happened at creation. It's not depicting something that happened in Israel's history. It's talking about something still to come. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. When we suffer, we're tempted to think either, well, God's not in control or God's not fair. But there's another possibility that God's not finished. In the book of Revelation, we we don't hear of behemoth or Rahab or Leviathan, but we do hear of a beast of the earth and a beast of the sea and a seven-headed dragon who is behind them both. And this dragon seeks to devour the people of God. But as salvation in Christ is revealed, the dragon and his angels are defeated and thrown down to earth. And then we read that the dragon's wrath is strong because he knows that his time is short. And authority to do horrific things is still given to him for a time. Yet at the end, Christ returns as the warrior king and the dragon is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts also were and they will be tormented forever. And then as the new heaven and the new earth are described, the prophetic symbolism continues and we're told that the sea was no more. No chaos monsters. No evil serpents. No more pain forever. And this leads to a second implication for Job and for us. Not only should we have hope, but we can also join with God in defeating evil. Chapter 42 gives us glimpses of how. Job's many friends and relatives surround him in the end with love and material help to rebuild him. And they also restrain evil by avoiding the harsh words and the eager advice of the three foolish friends. And they share food with Job and they comfort him. And this is a model for how the people of God pass through suffering together. And Job also gets busy living much the same way he did before because he always did help the defenseless and support the downtrodden. And we see this brief comment at the end of the book about how he gave his daughters an inheritance alongside their brothers. He now sees all too clearly that they could easily meet misfortune or widowhood, and and so he does what he can to protect those who are more likely to suffer. And we, the readers, are nudged at that point to ask ourselves, how can we imitate Job in his concern for the vulnerable people in God's good but still sometimes dangerous world? The conclusions of this book lead us not to shutting down, not to despairing, but to renewed care for those who are suffering, taking some of their suffering upon ourselves. And since we live in a time when Christ has come, we can say that joining with God in defeating evil looks like cruciform lives, lives that are shaped like the cross of Jesus. And there are many examples of purposeful Christian suffering throughout the Bible and throughout church history. Some of it's the results of outward persecution. Some of it is just faithfulness through sickness, poverty, war, encounters with individuals bent on evil. And we don't see always how God defeats Leviathan. And the process of that warfare hurts us. But it hurt Jesus more. He partook of death so that he might defeat the one who had the power of death. And at the cross, he disarmed all the demonic sons of pride and put them to open shame 
So in that knowledge, we too can withstand the last desperate writhings of this mortally wounded sea serpent. And we can stare evil in the face and we can stand with eyes wide open to who God is. He is the mysterious but glorious warrior who defeats evil in realms that are beyond our understanding. And maybe we should end not only this message, but our whole series with the only New Testament reference to Job. It's in James chapter 5. I'll read verses 7 and 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, Job was never told the why of his suffering. He was never given a glimpse into Satan's requests in chapters 1 and 2. Because for the outcome of the test to remain valid, he needed to be able to keep trusting God, even with this unknown cause of it all. And sometimes so do we. Do Satan and his minions have sinister plans for you that God is allowing for some mysterious purpose that might actually play into defeating Satan? Or is it just life in a fallen world? Or is it the result of our own sin? We have to wade through these murky waters each time we suffer. We don't know exactly what's going on. But make no mistake, God is defeating Leviathan, and our faithfulness amid suffering does play some role. The bigger question is, will you love God for God? If not, if you demand to know the answers, or if you demand to have relief on your terms, then the accuser can still discredit our faith. Now, God will still win through it all, but we won't share in the victory for that battle. So be patient, brothers and sisters. It won't last forever. It is purposeful if we are steadfast. And God is compassionate and merciful. And he is our victorious warrior king.